that I get to go after a certain amount of time. But, but imagine 500 years, just, the, just how it would change everything. Now that's a fantastical story, though it, it could happen, conceivable. But the resurrection of Christ from the grave actually is better than any diet cure you will ever find. It leads not to a 500-year life, but to eternal life. And it cures our most serious disease and affliction, the disease of sin and death. It's better than anything yak yogurt could produce or any other miracle of modern science. Because in the resurrection, there is life eternal. There is a true and everlasting cure for everything ultimately. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. That's how we should think of the reality of Christ being raised from the dead. God has dealt with sin and death in Christ. And He has been raised victorious over sin and death. And all those who flee to Him, all those who forsake self-effort and forsake sin, realizing there's no answer there, there's no true glory or pleasure or goodness there, but only in Christ. Those who flee to Christ in Him receive this cure, receive forgiveness, receive eternal life. And I just want to dig into verses 50 to 58 to, to think about this with you a little bit. Four things I want to draw from what we see in 50 to 58. First, the necessity of the resurrection. Second, the work of the resurrection. Third, the result of the resurrection. And then fourth, the practice of the resurrection. I'll cover these briefly. So first, the need of the resurrection. Paul says in verse 50, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The reality is that flesh and blood, normal humanity, that's what that means, normal humanity cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These bodies, these lives as we've known them, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These perishable bodies cannot inherit the imperishable. Paul has been talking with the Corinthians actually at length at different times in his letter here about this reality of the natural state. And he's been pointing out to them the difference between the natural state and the supernatural state. The state where the Spirit of God has breathed life and, and in that has brought understanding of the good news of Christ. The difference between these two. And so he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And then in chapter 3, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And so he's addressing the Corinthians because they're living as natural people, mere human beings in their natural state. Later on in a chapter, he, he teaches, uh, in, uh, in chapter 15, earlier from what we read, he teaches on the reality of the natural man and, and the natural body. But in Christ, we will have a spiritual, supernatural body. So he says in verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. He's speaking of the, the death and resurrection of a believer. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, thus so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image, we are born the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. He's teaching here about the reality of humanity, the reality for all of us. That we all are made in this state of Adam and Eve, our, our first parents, 
in this natural state, this original state. And there needs to be something different if we're going to live forever in his presence. That's what he's saying, basically. And he's pointing to the first Adam and then Jesus, the second Adam. The one uh, first Adam, uh, he, he speaks of him as a soul. Um, the first man became a living being, uh, a natural body. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam, Adam himself, is the, the father of humanity. And he came as a mortal man. Adam was not an eternal being. Sometimes we think, you know, uh, it's just so nice to read about Adam and Eve and we could just get back to that innocence. But, but it was never God's intention that that be the goal. Adam and Eve were put in a garden and they were mortal and they were called to trust God and obey God. And then they were able to take, they would have been able to take of the tree of life and have lived forever. But they failed in, in their obedience, in their mission. And they were mortal. And so God's intention is not to bring us back to the innocence of Adam as natural human beings living like Adam and Eve did, but to, but to take us beyond that to a new life in Christ where, where we experience the fullness of life and, and resurrected bodies and, and, and reborn souls by the, the Spirit of God. That is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 as he points out these differences between Adam and Christ. And so we must be transformed. We must ourselves be transformed in soul and body to inherit the eternal kingdom. The goal here is for us to live in the full and final kingdom of Christ. He's reigning right now over all things and over his church in order to oversee the life of the church, that the church might love the world, the church might proclaim the good news, and that humanity will experience through this good news, through simple faith in Christ, new life. There's something extraordinary that goes on when we encounter the good news and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we move from thinking, this is silly stuff, I don't need this, to this is good news. We might think that that's just an intellectual exercise that goes on, and indeed it is an intellectual exercise, but it's so much more. Because God needs to work, does work in us to, draw, to bring us from that place of, of thinking, well, this is unimportant to receiving it ourselves. There's new life in us. That's what the Bible talks about being born again. That's what goes on in that process. There's a mysterious change in us by the power of the Holy Spirit where there's a new perception. And we are new. We are made new creations at that very moment. That is amazingly good news. But we're not fully new creations. Our bodies are still our natural bodies. Our, our souls receive new life in the Holy Spirit, but our bodies are still these natural bodies. And, and so there must be a putting off of the old natural body the, and a taking on of the new body. Christ is the first one to experience that. He had a natural human body, no sin, but it was a natural body. And when he died, he, he died fully, bearing our sins, but then he rose again with an eternal supernatural body. That's what the resurrection is. And Jesus is the first fruits, the Bible speaks of, the first one, the, 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 the number one model. And all who believe in him will also receive an eternal body as well at the resurrection. That's what Paul's talking about here. So Jesus' victory, Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee of ours as well. And so we need to put off the old and put on the new. That's why death gets transformed for the believer. The death is, is new life, actually. Going to be with the Lord in His presence, receiving upon the resurrection, the resurrection, the return of Christ and the resurrection, new bodies. Flesh and blood will not inherit 
the kingdom of God. And it will not be inhabited by mere natural men. There is an eternal glory that awaits us. There is a life that goes on forever. And this has to function in our lives. That, that's what Paul's getting at in this passage. This reality of Christ being raised from the dead in his resurrected body needs to function in our lives that we realize this is coming for us. And we're to live in light of his victory and live in light of participating fully in that victory in the future. And this shifts how we think about life. So what is your expectation for your future? How do you think about your, your future? Do you only think in terms of this life? Do you define this life as the best it will get? Are you living for the best you might get here? Or is the scripture affecting how you think about things that you realize there's an eternal life awaiting you should you trust in Christ? And you should live, we should all live in light of that. What you have right now is not the final version. It is in a sense, it's a beta version. And it's a really buggy beta version. There's a final version awaiting you in Christ that will be perfect and flawless and glorious. Don't settle for anything less. Don't live just for what you have in this life. As good as it might get at times, there is something far better. Next, the work of the resurrection. Paul tells us in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Paul says that there's a mystery. He's going to reveal a mystery, this hidden thing made plain, this, this important secret that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What does he mean by that? We shall not all sleep. Well, he's speaking of the sleep of the body. It's a euphemism for physical death. This idea of sleeping is used to describe physical death when our bodies are, in a sense, asleep, but our souls remain alive. Um, and just a side note, uh, that our souls don't perish with our bodies. They go on. And until the final uh, resurrection, when we get new bodies, our souls, are, when we're apart from this human body at death, are immediately in the presence of the Lord. To be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what Paul says. He, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. That's the presence of the Lord, he means. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross next to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So there's no you know, falling asleep for a couple thousand years sort of thing. You go immediately into the Lord's presence. Your soul is present with him. Your body is asleep at that point. Your human body, your natural body is in, in the grave. But there's a new body that's made by the Lord ready for you. And so Paul says we shall not all sleep, but we all, shall all be changed. Not everybody's going to sleep, actually. There'll be some who are alive at the, at the time that Christ returns. Um, they get to go directly, immediately, as he returns from their natural bodies to a resurrected body. They, there's no sleeping. It's an immediate transition. So Paul says we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall all be transformed from this natural body, this body inherited from Adam and Eve, into a new body inherited from Christ in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, subtly and quickly, not gradually, but at the last trumpet as Christ returns. 
the trumpet of God is, is used in Scripture and will be used at the, the final day to signify the presence of the Lord. So back when the people were in the desert with Moses, um, God was on Mount Sinai and the trumpet of God sounded to say, I'm here. God is present. So this trumpet, this final trumpet is an announcement that now God's presence is fully among us. And, and at that moment, we will all be before the Lord, that last judgment. We are all headed for that. And it's an important day. It's a glorious day for those who have fled to Christ. It's a day of rewarding their faith in Christ. The Bible says you only need to have faith like a mustard seed barely noticeable to be counted as genuine faith. So do not be discouraged. Sometimes we talk about this and you think, well, my faith isn't great enough. It only needs to be this small. It only needs to be enough to say, please, Jesus, I want you. Would you help me? I don't want this. I want you. Please help me. Help me in my weakness. For those who have fled to Christ in this way, there will be a reward for faith and the faithful deeds that follow when we orient ourselves that way. Trust in Christ and the fruit that comes. There'll be an eternal reward. For those who rely on themselves, the reward of faith in self and faithlessness to God will be eternal separation from God. That's the reality. That's the justice, the goodness of God. God would be unjust not to do these things. And He invites all of us to receive this good news. It's freely offered to any and all. And there's nothing you need to do to earn it. You simply need to receive it. You need to turn away from alternatives and receive it. It's that simple. It's that good. And for you, if you are in that place, Christ's victory is your victory. His resurrection guarantees your resurrection. He will be faithful to keep you to the very end. And He will accomplish this work. Next, the victory of the resurrection. Verse 54 it says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ comes and has come to give us the fullness of victory over sin and death. This is how Revelation pictures it. The final fullness. Verse 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What a, what a precious promise. And this awaits all of us who have fled to Jesus. I love what it says in verse 55 and following. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been learning about these realities, right, as we've been going through Romans. The reality of the law, this good law of the Lord that tells us what to do, always the right thing, simply can be summed up as this, love God as He deserves with all your heart, 
All your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's what He deserves. He's good. He's the giver of all good things. He's the one who's created you. He's the one who sustains you. All creation is around us. All these blessings we know, all the glory we see is from Him. He deserves our love. He loves us beyond anything we'll ever measure and compare to. Simply love God with all your being and love one another as you love yourself. Simple. Makes sense. That's the law of God. It's good. It's right. But the reality, the sad reality is the rules of God, these things that are good, actually end up exposing, if we're honest, expose our own sin and create in us even a desire to run the other way. It's, it doesn't make sense, but this is the predicament we all are in in our natural fallen human state. It's like the toddler put in a room full of toys, things to play with, and then you tell the toddler, don't touch the stereo. What's the first thing the toddler does? Right to the stereo. That's, that's who we are. So we have this problem. We all as humans know what's right and wrong. We know what we ought to do, but we run the other way for the wrong things. And, and that can look in all sorts of ways. Sometimes we run in such a way that everyone knows that we're, we're running the wrong way. Our lives are full of obvious problems. And it's obvious to everyone else, maybe not to us. But sometimes they're hidden things. And probably one of the worst things we can do is running our own way, trying to establish our own righteousness before God, thinking that we can be good enough to earn. We were never made to do it on our own. The idea of self-sufficient humanity is, is, a, is, is a fable, and it's contrary to God's design. We were made for a vital, dependent relationship on God, for everything. And so one of the worst sins, really, but the, I think it is the worst sin, is to do it on our own. So for some people, they look really good because they're working really hard to do it on their own. But they're probably the most insulting to God because they're doing it on their own. They're fooling themselves and fooling everyone else. And the reality is they do fall short, far short of the standard that God has. Love God with all your being. Love each other as yourselves. We all need rescue. We all need rescue from this problem of the law and the problem of sin and death. And that's what this passage is teaching us. Jesus brings us that rescue. Jesus brings us that victory. Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. He has died in our place to satisfy justice. And he has been raised from the dead, alive forevermore. And now through simple faith in him, we're forgiven and we receive his life. We're credited with his righteousness. We're accepted as sons and daughters. And now he promises never to leave us, never to forsake us, to keep us. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He will keep us to the end. Then our souls will go to be with him and it will be glorious. And then he'll return. We'll have new bodies and a new creation and, and we'll have this glorious kingdom to dwell in forever. That's the truth. That's the impact. That's the import of the resurrection. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally and briefly, practice of the resurrection. If these things are true, how ought we to live? How would you live if the yak yogurt story was true? You'd adjust your life, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd think, well, maybe I'd, you know, be a little bolder in my decisions, try things that are a little harder. Maybe I'd go for that career that was a little bit of a stretch beyond me. I'd, just to try it. I got 500 years to keep trying on other things. Do a second career. Maybe think, you know, I'll work 100 years and invest and then I'll live off of that interest for the next 400 years. Some of us are smart enough to think that way. You would radically change how you live, wouldn't you? Right? If that were true. 
Well, I don't think there's any hidden tribe living on yak yogurt, but there is a growing worldwide tribe living on Jesus Christ. And he has guaranteed the results. He has overcome sin and death. He has shown us what a resurrected body looks like. By the way, you can look in Luke 24 and see what it's like. It's a physical, real body. They could touch him, embrace him. He ate food. He convinced them, I'm not a ghost. This is the real deal. He's guaranteed the results. And he's guaranteed our future in him. Not for 100 years, not for 500 years, not for 5,000 years, but an infinite number of years in his glorious presence in the renewed creation. That's the reality. And Paul tells us at the end of this passage, therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of this, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the Lord, if you have fled to Christ and you're looking to Christ, everything you do as you depend on him is not in vain. In other words, there'll be a reward, there'll be a blessing. So no matter what we do in Christ's name, whether it's weeding a garden or winning souls to the Lord, whether we're delivering pizza or delivering sermons, all the things we do in this life as we look to him, there's eternal reward. None of it is in vain. And so if we live in light of this, our lives should be radically different perhaps. Let us not waste our time with trivial pursuits. Let us not be distracted by sin or temptation. Let's run to Jesus with those things. Let us not take the lazy route. Let us live in this amazing story. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Let us live boldly and wisely. Let us live ever thinking of this eternal life we have. Let me finish with this quote by Jonathan Edwards, a pastor and theologian from New England. He said way back in 1722, I believe he was a young man when he said this, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. This is the impact of the truth of the resurrection. Let's just take a minute and consider maybe one thing to do in light of this truth. Maybe just you close your eyes and say, thank you, Jesus, for the victory. That's a great start. Maybe there's something in your life, something to let go of, something to turn away from. Maybe there's a new thing to try that you were afraid to try, and maybe the Lord's calling you to try it. Whatever that might be, I don't know. The Lord knows. Just take a minute to prayerfully consider what God would want you to do in light of his word. And then uh, Pastor Toby will transition us to communion.